Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I pick an individual bird species and walk you through telling you everything you need to know about it, from how it got its name, to obscure facts from research experiments, to how it evolved, all with my dumb jokes in between. And today is a very special episode because I'm covering a very special bird, the Shrike. Now, I'm recording today just from my closet in Virginia Beach, so there won't be any nice bird sounds behind us uh, like in some of my other episodes, but that's because there's a lot of information to get through here on the loggerhead shrike specifically that I'll be covering. Shrikes are most well known for their habit of impaling prey on thorn bushes and barbed wire, which has given them the flashy nickname murder birds or butcher birds. Specifically today, I'll be focusing on the loggerhead shrike, one of only two shrikes to occur in North America. And the reason I chose the shrike is because it features on the new and improved Dirty Bird Podcast t-shirt. TJ Ranoski, a good friend and awesome artist out of Richmond, Virginia, whose artwork recently featured in the Atlantic magazine, made this sick design for the Dirty Bird Podcast t-shirt. It has like a birder with hypnotic rays coming out of their binoculars, and they're looking at a ferocious but elegant shrike. Definitely check it out. Uh, it would make a great gift for the birder in your life, even if they aren't into the show. Uh, check out the link to the show notes to find it. Um, and you can also find them if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I have a link there in my bio. All right, enough sales pitching. Let's get on with the show and talk about the loggerhead shrike. The scientific name for the loggerhead shrike is Lanius ludovicianus. Its genus name, Lanius, is Latin for butcher. Like I said, one of the nicknames for shrikes is butcher bird. And this Lanius genus contains most of the shrikes in the shrike family. Its species name, Ludovicianus, we've actually seen on the show before. Does Thryothorus ludovicianus ring any bells? Well, it should. That's a scientific name for the Carolina wren. And if you listen to that episode, you'll know that Ludovicianus means from Louisiana. And usually species get named with it, like, you know, if they were historically collected somewhere in the American South, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s, and like John James Audubon was running around shooting and collecting species to send to Britain. 
um, to be identified and everything. Um, if one of those species was originally collected somewhere in the American South, they would from time to time just say it's from, you know, the Louisiana territories. And uh, so then they would call it Ludovicianus. Um, there's a little bit more complicated history, too. Just listen to the Carolina Wren episode if you want to know more. And I got interested, too, trying to figure out this common name Shrike for these birds, where that comes from. Um, so the common name Shrike is actually derivative of the word shriek, and it is due to this bird's shrill call. And our loggerhead Shrike, it gets its common name loggerhead due to its head being proportionally large for its body. You'll see, like, loggerhead pop up as a description uh, from time to time in the animal world. I can think of, you know, like the loggerhead turtle. The word loggerhead first developed in the UK, um, and it appears to date back as far as Shakespeare. It pops up in some of his plays. Uh, A logger is a heavy block of wood that was tied to a horse's leg to keep them from running away. So, like, the phrase to be at loggerheads with someone, um, you know, you're arguing with them. The conversation isn't moving forward. You're kind of like a horse that's hobbled. You're at loggerheads. Um, and then someone who is a loggerhead, they, you know, kind of have a big, heavy head. Uh, it's kind of like calling someone a numbskull or a blockhead. So while I get it that, you know, these strikes, these loggerhead strikes, they have a big head. It's, you know, it's noticeable. But they're definitely not stupid, as we'll talk about uh, throughout the show. They're pretty damn smart. Um, So maybe this common name is just a little bit derogatory for them. I mean, how would you like being called the blockhead bird? The loggerhead shrike is found across the contiguous U.S. and Mexico year-round and in southern Canada in the summer. There are migratory and sedentary populations whose ranges overlap almost completely, although loggerhead shrikes found above the 40th parallel, basically the border between Canada and the U.S., are all migratory. Um, And so what that means with their overlapping territory, if you're like in the, you know, contiguous U.S. and it's wintertime and you see a loggerhead shrike, it's difficult to tell whether that's a migratory or or one of the year-round ones. Among the year-round populations, males will defend a territory for the whole year, while females will mingle a bit during the winter. Migratory populations are generally short-range migrants. They don't travel too far south. This means that northern breeders will winter farther north than southern breeders. So they'll just kind of move like a little bit south during the winter. They don't like make a long epic migration down to South America, you know, a specific spot, anything like that, like some bird species do. However, there are four hot spots that migrant loggerheads go in the winter. The Atlantic coast, the Mississippi alluvial valley, Texas, and Mexico. Their preferred habitat contains areas with both open ground and high perches. As we'll talk about, these little birds are aerial assassins, and they rely heavily on their eyesight to help them locate prey. They will sit up on a perch like a tree branch and scan an open field in front of them, looking for a prey item to pounce upon, and so that's where you'll usually see them. Like all birds I talk about on the show, I highly encourage you to, you know, look up a picture of them and, you know, take a look at our, uh, Um, episode cover art too for a picture of this bird but to give a description to you over the audio waves uh, at first glance this bird might have you fooled that it's just an ordinary songbird it's about the size of a robin and has an overall gray body with black wings and tail 
It also has a black mask, similar to that of the cedar or bohemian waxwing, and it gives it a bandit-like appearance. That black mask is the first hint at this bird's true nature, though, and if you look a little closer at the bill, you'll for sure see that this bird is a cold-blooded killer. Its upper beak has a hook on the end, almost giving it a shark-like look. Males and females look exactly alike. There's no real way to tell them apart by observation. There is a way to tell them apart by looking at the sixth primary feather. If you're a researcher and, you know, you've caught them in a mist net and you're holding them, you can sex them that way. But, you know, for us, just birding and observing, um, it's almost impossible to tell them apart unless you look at their behavior, um, as we'll talk about when we talk about uh, their breeding. It does have one look-alike species, the northern shrike. Um, this is the only other shrike in North America. Uh, but it has a whole Arctic distribution, stretching across the tundra of Russia and China and as far west as Norway and France. It's often called the Great Gray Shrike in Europe, from what I could see. But the loggerhead shrike is smaller than the northern shrike, and also it has that big chunky head, you know, that it gets its blockhead bird um, name from, so that can help you tell them apart. Another good field marker is the northern shrike does not have the white wing bars the way the loggerhead shrike does. So that's kind of a dead giveaway. All right, now let's talk about the feeding of these birds. This is probably the most exciting part about them. Like I said, these are little predators. Um, they eat a whole lot of stuff, and the way they do it is super cool. They eat a wide variety of food, everything from insects to other birds. They don't eat any seeds or fruit. Nope. This bird likes prey the way Gollum does. Give it to us. And you keep nasty chips. During the breeding season, their diet seems to mostly compose of insects like grasshoppers and dragonflies. Uh, these appear to be particular favorites of them, uh, but they'll also eat crickets, snails, caterpillars, earwigs, uh, I mean lots and lots of, of insects. In winter, when these insects are mostly dormant, they'll rely more on vertebrate prey, such as mice, shrews, and small birds like sparrows and goldfinches. And they'll also eat turtles, lizards, and frogs. Really, like, their diet kind of depends on where they are. You know, if they're in an area and there's a little pond nearby, um, you know, they're going to be eating a lot more frogs. Or if they're in kind of a more arid area, then it's probably going to be a lot of lizards on the menu. John Kirk Townsend, a famous ornithologist for whom a slew of birds are named after, wrote to John James Audubon that he had observed loggerhead shrikes scooping up small fish that fishermen had left on the shore, although I didn't find any other accounts of them eating fish, and it seemed like this was just kind of an opportunistic feeding. You know, they they don't have the kingfisher's ability to, like, dive in and, and catch fish. Um, they're only going to eat fish if it's sitting on the shore for them. Their hunting strategy is a bit different from other predatory birds, you know, like eagles and hawks and falcons. Um, what they do is they locate prey from an elevated perch, such as a fence line or a tree branch, and really use their keen eyesight to spot it. Then from that perch, they'll swoop down and capture the prey on the ground, or like if it's a flying insect, they might grab it out of the air. They generally don't spot prey from the air the way like a hawk or a falcon, you know, will circle and look for food on the ground and then dive out of the sky. They, they don't really do that. They like to be 
on a perch that's about 20 feet off the ground and provides a clear, unobstructed view for him. Power lines actually seem to fill this requirement um, very well, and so you'll often see shrikes um, perched uh, along the wires of utility poles. And these guys are predators, you know. They're eating mostly live prey, uh, not messing around with any seeds or fruit or anything, but they're not above eating roadkill or carrion. Uh, they've been documented feeding on dead coots, cows, and sheep. As far as the other birds that they can take out, they can be pretty ambitious. Um, I mean, remember, this bird is the size of a robin, and it's a, a predatory bird. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy um, how small it is and still able to, to kill other um, bird species that are bigger than it. They've been observed successfully killing birds as large as morning doves. Um, they've also been observed unsuccessfully attacking both spruce and sharp-tailed grouse. Like a grouse, that's a pretty sizable bird. I mean, that's like the size of a chicken. Uh, can you imagine like a robin taking on a chicken? <laughs> um, that's pretty damn ambitious. And they're pretty strong little guys too. Um, they've been observed carrying and impaling prey as large as cardinals and mockingbirds. So those are birds that are like a, a little bit bigger than they are themselves. And they're still able to fly and carry them and then, you know, impale them as we'll talk about more. Generally, their strategy is if the prey is their own body mass or larger, they'll carry it with their feet. But they prefer to carry most of their prey in their bill. So as long as the prey is small enough, they'll usually carry it in their bill. And while I mentioned that, you know, they are able to take down birds bigger than themselves like morning doves. Um, but they tend to target smaller prey over big prey. These attacks on large prey are likely at a desperation when no other small prey is available. The small prey is just easier to catch and handle, you know. It's rather than going for, you know, the big prey item that might feed you for a while, it's probably better to just go after lots of little small ones. Like, um, I don't know if anyone watches that show alone. Um, <laughs> my wife and I love that show. But, you know, people basically, like, are dropped off in, you know, some Arctic area and they have to survive for as long as they can. Um, and some people will try to go after a big game item, you know, like, if I can just bring down one musk ox, you know, then I can eat that for the whole winter. And then you have other people that their strategy is, I'm going to catch a lot of rabbits, you know. I'm not going to try to hunt that one big musk ox. I'm just going to catch and eat a lot of rabbits um and definitely shrikes they go for that let's catch a lot of rabbits uh strategy but if they're really hungry and a musk ox comes along you know they'll swoop on it i did see an experiment out of the university of oklahoma in 1975 that found that loggerhead shrikes would consistently attack smaller sized mice that were placed in their cages over the big ones um Again, you know, remember, this is a, a fairly small bird, so it's got to watch out for its own safety, too. Even though it looks pretty damn fierce, like, a mouse could still fuck you up. Um, so uh, they're going to want to go after whatever is the smallest and the easiest prey that they have the best chance of overpowering. Um, consistent with this, when selecting avian prey, uh, they like smaller birds like chickadees, kinglets, and sparrows. Um, that's what they're usually killing, not the big birds. These big birds, you know, may be off the menu for the most part, but they are prone to kleptoparasitism. Uh, that's a big fancy word for stealing food. <laughs> Loggerhead shrikes have been observed stealing grubs from European starlings, beetle larvae from eastern meadowlarks, and ox beetle larvae from brown thrashers. 
what all those three birds I just named have in common is they're able to dig in the soil for food, something that trikes with their hooked bills can't do. So this is a really cool example of kind of a, a smart strategy for them. They're diversifying their possible, you know, food sources. Like, they would love to eat grubs, but, you know, they can't dig in the ground and get them. So instead, they will, you know, just steal the grubs from birds that can dig in the ground and find them. Shrikes can be insanely ballsy when it comes to stealing food. I found one account where a loggerhead shrike stole a mouse right out from the claws of an American kestrel. That's incredible. The kestrel could have totally killed the shrike. And nope, it's going in and stealing that mouse out from it. Researchers that have observed and calculated the hunting efficiency of shrikes found that compared to other predatory birds, they have a higher capture rate. So they really are little murder machines, um, even more so than other predatory birds. They're just, they're getting it done. They're out there killing and eating. As I mentioned, uh, a mouse can fuck you up. Um, so when they're killing vertebrates, um, they have to quickly and efficiently kill them in order to not end up being injured by their prey or having their prey escape. Um, <laughs> I read a uh, awesome paper. It was titled, Come on, baby, let's do the twist. I, I loved this. I'm, I'm a big Chubby Checker fan. Uh, but this researcher did high-speed camera recordings of loggerhead shrikes killing mice and found that the shrikes would repeatedly perform a unique head-rolling motion while latching onto the nape of a mouse's neck. This twisted and accelerated the mice rapidly, exposing them to an estimated 6 Gs of force, that's 6 times the force of gravity, which basically effectively severed their spinal cords. So, that is awesome. They've developed this special movement, so it's so fast, it you know could only be uh, captured on a high-speed camera, where they just whip that mouse around, snap its neck real quick, and, you know, done. Dinner's ready. That hooked bill also definitely helps them give a killing blow. Um, but if you look really close at the bill, I encourage you to like zoom in on a picture um, of their bill. You'll see something even more amazing. They have teeth. Well, not true teeth, actually. These are called tomial teeth. They're on either side of the upper bill, right on either side of the hook. And they have these little tooth-like points. It's really cool and menacing. Um, you know, definitely look at it. So these tomial teeth on the sides of their bill combined with the hook, it's kind of like a three-pronged um, attack, and uh, it helps them grab on uh, right by the cervical spine, the, you know, the neck of uh, whatever they're capturing, and hold it tightly and then snap it. Still developing juveniles have shorter bill tips and shorter tomial teeth, and they have greater difficulty handling vertebrate prey than the fully grown adults. So that kind of shows you the importance of these structures of their bill. While their beak is certainly a fearsome weapon, their claws are deadly too. I read an account from 1920 out of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, where a man observed a loggerhead shrike attack and kill a large Phoebe using only its claws. Classically, though, these birds will be using their beak to dispatch all of their prey. That's their main weapon. Their claws are actually not very strong, you know, compared with the talons of a hawk or a falcon or an eagle. Um, so they really don't use them as much. But, I mean, if they need to in a pinch, you know, they're still killing weapons. That black mask that they have, 
Um, the reason they have that is it helps to deflect the sun. Think of it almost like, you know, football players that'll rub like black paint below their eyes to help shade their eyes uh, from the effects of the sun. Um, that's basically what the black mask does in the uh, in the shrikes. So that's a really cool evolutionary adaptation. All right, finally, the good part. The thing that this bird is most famous for and what lends it its nickname, the butcher bird, is the fact that it will sometimes impale food items on sharp objects like thorns or barbed wire fences in order to store them. And I mean, this is like the classic thing that, you know, gets people super excited about these birds. Um, You know, sometimes people will be like out in the woods or something walking along and they'll find like all these mice impaled on like a a thorn branch or a barbed wire fence. And they think there's like some and they think there's some sadistic serial killer person, you know, out there doing it. And then, you know, they do a little research and it's like, oh, no, it's just a sadistic little bird. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's incredibly like freaky to come across and it's crazy uh that this bird does that um even more barbaric though is that their prey isn't always dead when they impale it i ran an account where a shrike territory that had a small creek running through it um and the shrike there would hunt crawfish out of the creek this occurred at the MacArthur Agroecology Research Center. Um, I'll be mentioning that place a bunch in this show. They've done a ton of loggerhead shrike research. So, like, out of the papers I read, like, I'd say a good quarter of them came out of the, that place. They do a lot of shrike research. Um, a researcher out of there was walking around um, their ranch land in Lake Placid, Florida, when he found a cache of 23 crawfish impaled to a barbed wire fence, 18 of which were still wriggling and moving their legs. So that's some fresh seafood right there, you know. You <laughs> impale it, still alive. It's nice and fresh whenever you want to come and, and have a low country boil with some uh, crawfish. So where they impale their prey, um, you'll see it called larders or caches. Um, it's basically like, you know, a cupboard for them to have for their food. Um, and, you know, just like people like to organize their cupboard, strikes do too. Um, They appear not to like to mix and match their impaled prey. Rather, they'll impale it on a specific site. Like, they might have an area where they only impale crawfish, and then they'll have another area where they only impale mice. Or maybe they'll have a spot in their larder, you know, that's where I put the mice, and then I put the crawfish somewhere else. Um, A researcher that observed um, all the... That researcher we just talked about that observed all those impaled, wriggling crawfish, he actually took a few of them and moved them farther down the fence line and observed that consistently the Shrike would return the crawfish back to their original spot, dedicating that, like, you know, that was his area for them. He was probably super pissed at the researcher for, you know, coming in and messing up his tidy larder. And this impaling behavior, it's not just the loggerhead shrike. This is in all shrikes. Um, All true shrikes of the family Linidae perform this impaling behavior. So it shows that it's a deep-seated behavior. Um, It appears to be pretty instinctive, um, although there is some learning to it, which we'll talk about. Um, But the young start impaling prey after four to five weeks. But the young start impaling prey four to five weeks after fledging. Uh, A quick side note here. Um... Another reason why I wanted to do this episode on the Shrike so bad is I recently read the sci-fi series Hyperion. I highly recommend it if you're into sci-fi. It's awesome. Um, But without spoiling anything, there's a a big bad guy in the book um, called the Shrike um, and kind of mimics some of the behaviors um, of these birds. So 
shout out to Jacob um, if you're listening for uh, turning me on to to that series. Um, but uh, yeah, it just shows you how kind of uh, these birds have captured people's imaginations, uh, you know, with their impaling behavior. So much so that a sci-fi series villain um, can be named after them and mimic them. Sometimes this impaling behavior can prove dangerous for shrikes. Uh, I read an account from 1921 out of Jacksonville, Florida, where a utility line worker noted that loggerhead shrikes would routinely use the sharp end of tie wires on electric lines to impale grasshoppers and lizards. Sometimes the birds would accidentally touch part of the live wire, and as the worker put it, a flashover occurs and a bird and a fuse are gone. I like that, you know, typical uh, electrician. He's mourning the fuse being gone. Like, damn it, I got to replace another fuse. Um, electric fences can be deadly to them, too. Uh, despite putting a moratorium on the death penalty, a uh, prison in California executed 11 loggerhead shrikes when it installed new electric fencing around the prison. And the shrikes would land on the electric fences and, poof, get fried. Take a ride on old Sparky. They don't only impale um, their food for storage, though. They'll also cache it within the forks of branches. Um, this is called, like, wedging behavior. And they don't only impale food. Um, shrikes have been observed impaling bits of cloth, snail shells, eggshells, fecal sacs, and even bread crusts. Some of this is done by male shrikes as they try to court females to kind of boost their cash and make it seem like they're really good hunters. But it's also done by young shrikes who seem to practice how to impale. Um, this made me laugh because I'm just picturing like little kid shrikes playing with their little toy shells and, you know, putting them on a thorn. Like it looks all cute and fun, but really they're trading for the much more morbid task of like jamming a still living mouse onto the spikes. The young actually do a lot of playing to learn to refine their impaling behavior. Uh, maybe makes me think of like, I don't know young kids playing with toy guns and stuff like I mean it's fun but like when you think about hmm what are they actually practicing for you know um the young actually do a lot of playing to learn and refine their impaling behavior uh even as nestlings they will drag inedible objects around the nest and then progress to more sophisticated behaviors one behavior they do was termed Gungen by a German researcher which means spot movements and has also been called dabbing Yes, young shrikes dab. <laughs> um, basically, they will pick up an object and then dab it on the ground like they're repeatedly impaling it on an imaginary spike. And this is part of their like learning process to get good at um, impaling later on. Because, I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty complicated movement and kind of hard to do with just your beak to impale a food item. This impaling behavior is not only about... Um, you know, storing their prey. Like I said, also males will kind of use it to show off to females how, you know, how fit they are, what good hunters they are. Like, <laughs> it's almost like, I don't know, uh, someone with a bunch of, you know, deer heads on their wall or something. I don't think any woman is actually uh, impressed by that in <laughs> real life with humans. But I guess with shrikes, you know, they see that uh, collection and they're like, oh, hmm, hmm, he can probably provide for me. Um, the impaling behavior, though, also helps to season their prey. Uh, for example, the lubber grasshopper is native to the southern U.S. and secretes toxins to deter predators from eating it. Loggerhead shrikes have learned this, and they will impale lubber grasshoppers and just let them hang out until the toxins dissipate and they're edible. 
They've also been observed doing this with other species, uh, toxic butterflies, such as the monarch butterfly, with toads that have, you know, toxins in their skin, and then also with moss. They have also been observed carefully removing certain organs from insects, um, presumably because they're toxic, and then eating the, uh, and then eating the non-toxic parts. I think this is just amazing. Like, it shows how well they know their prey. They're not just mindlessly grabbing something and gobbling it up. Like, they catch something, and they know exactly what they need to do to prepare it for eating. I mean, this is almost like a form of cooking, you know, when you think about it. All this prey they eat, though, it has, you know, a lot of bones. Maybe it's got feathers and fur. So, similar to owls, they will regurgitate up pellets uh, with the indigestible bones and hair of their prey. Shrikes almost always hunt alone, um, although I did find one account from Madras, Oregon in 2001, where two shrikes were observed killing a large garter snake together. Basically, both of them took turns swooping down on the snake and pecking it to death with their bills. Um, once the snake was dead, one of the birds carried it um, in his beak. Um, weird for you know such a large prey item. Like I said, usually if the, if the prey item's larger than the shrike is, they'll carry it with their feet. Um, the, unfortunately, the observer wasn't able to locate the shrike or the snake again after it kind of took off, but he did find a shrike nest nearby. So it's unknown whether this was like a, a male and female maybe jointly killing the snake together to eat it, or whether they were motivated more like to protect their nest from a, a hungry snake coming and eating their eggs. And a final fantastic feeding behavior in these birds. Um, they have been observed as one of the few predators of the northern curly-tailed lizard, which is an invasive species in Florida that was originally introduced from the Bahamas and Cuba to try and protect sugarcane plants. Like I said, they have a, a you know pretty diverse uh, menu, and uh, it's awesome to see that they'll go after some invasive species too and help keep them under control. All right, so now we know how they get their food, all about their crazy impaling behavior. Let's talk about shrike breeding now. Like most birds, come springtime, male and female loggerhead shrikes start thinking about one thing, finding a mate and raising young. If the shrikes are part of the migratory population, once males migrate back up north, they will begin establishing a breeding territory and singing to defend it from rival males and to attract a mate. If they are a sedentary population, the male will defend his territory year-round, but will really start to ramp up his singing come spring. They begin breeding earlier than other songbirds, um, starting to make nests as early as April. Um, so it's kind of, you see this with predatory birds, like, you know, hawks, they'll start building their nests and, and getting ready to breed in, in March and stuff, like long before, you know, your, your typical songbird is uh, making their nest. So even though they are part of the songbird family, um, we'll talk about this with their, their evolution, um, they've kind of shifted into that kind of predatory bird uh, mode where um, you're going to breed a little bit early. When the males are defending their territory, they're pretty elegant fighters. Um, two males will square off and sometimes bow to each other even before they fight, almost like fencers. They will also occasionally stamp the ground before fighting, just to show that they're really pissed off and ready to go at it. The males are a lot more tender when trying to court the female, though. Like other male songbirds, uh, he'll attract his mate by singing. When a female flies into his territory to check him out, he'll fly over near her, hop excitedly, and continue singing while quivering his wings. 
He may also perform some erratic display flights or even chase the female around a bit. Eventually, if the female approves of his display, she will begin uttering calls similar to nestling food begging. This is a common courtship behavior in birds um, where they'll engage in courtship feeding. Um, We saw it in our last episode with the morning doves. The male will at this point fly off and try to secure a fresh bug to feed to the female. I did see accounts, though, where if he's in a pinch and can't find fresh food, he can always go to his food larder and select some impaled snack off of a thorn. After the male feeds her, the deal is sealed, and they are pair-bonded. They'll continue engaging in courtship feeding nearly every day and also continue to sing and wing-quiver for each other to maintain that pair-bond. Both parents cooperate with nest building. Um, I saw it typically takes about a week for them to make their nest. The male will bring material to the female, and she'll do the majority of the nest building. They make bulky nests out of roots, twigs, and bark strips, and then they line the inside with a soft layer of flower and grasses. They will also coat it with feathers and fur from the prey that they've killed. And this, this is kind of a cool image because, like, I'm imagining, you know, a mouse fur carpet draped in the nest, you know, the way people have, like, bearskin rugs. Like, they got this big old bulky nest and, you know, it's nice and comfy inside with, you know, trophies from their kills. They will also incorporate man-made objects into the nest like uh, string and cloth. Nests are usually placed in dense foliage in a tree crown or bush. They seem to really like thorny bushes to kind of help protect their nests, so blackberry bushes are apparently a favorite for them. They don't reuse old nests. Um, rather, they'll build a new nest every year. Although I did find one documented case uh, of a pair of loggerhead shrikes reusing a sage thrasher's nest in the Green River Basin of Wyoming. Their clutch size can range anywhere from two to six eggs. Usually it averages around four. The female will do all of the incubating while the male continues to defend the territory and bring her food. After about 16 to 18 days of incubating, the eggs will hatch. And now the real challenge begins. Uh, The male does all of the feeding. Um, He'll feed the mother on the nest and he tries to keep up with the hungry nestlings. Like I said, these birds are really efficient hunters, um, and the male will try to bring a food item every hour back to the nest. His food caches particularly come in handy during this frantic feeding time, so that dad can go to the cache for a quick snack for himself, or, you know, if he hasn't gotten a kill in a while, then he can bring something from the larder to feed mom or the hungry nestlings. When bringing food to the nest, if the food is a lizard or a bug, I saw that typically he'll bring it whole to the nest. But if it's a mammalian or avian prey, he'll decapitate it before bringing it to the nest. I don't know if he's like, you know, making sure that it's dead because like, you know, like I said, a mouse can fuck you up and probably, you know, a sparrow too. Like if you bring it, it turns out to still be alive. It could really peck and hurt your nestlings. Um, I saw one statistic saying on average, each breeding pair of shrikes produces about 4.5 fledged young per year. Um, This is just an average, though, especially in the northern part of the loggerhead shrikes range in Alberta, Canada. Um, The weather's harsher, and so the average can be as low as 1.1 fledged young per pair. Um, You know, two birds only making one per year, that's not enough to keep up with the population. Um, And as we'll talk about, this is part of the reason why the species is declining. 
they are capable of raising two broods in a year in the southern parts of their territories. Um, sometimes they'll even attempt three. Um, I saw that down in Florida that they'll attempt three. They do pretty well tolerating the presence of human buildings um, and are still able to successfully raise a nest um, as long as there's sufficient open ground for them to hunt in. I read a study out of Tucson, Arizona that observed loggerhead shrike pairs successfully raising young in areas like school playgrounds, residential front yards, and parking lots. A key factor for urban shrike breeding success was the presence of bare ground and exotic or native plant cover. Shrikes typically avoided places that included manicured lawns in their breeding territory. Um, you know, this may seem a little counterintuitive because, like, they like fields, you know, so wouldn't they like a, you know, nice manicured lawn? Um, however, you know, nice manicured lawns, those are non-native grasses, and they're also intensively mowed. Um, so they don't harbor the insects that the shrikes need to successfully raise young. After about 16 to 20 days of the nestlings getting, you know, fed by dad, um, the young are fledged and ready to leave the nest. They look very similar to their parents, except their colors aren't as smooth. Um, they have like an almost barred appearance to their feathers when compared to their parents. Banding studies show that shrikes seem to disperse a lot with their breeding. Um, thinking back to my last episode, um, they're sort of similar to the morning dove. Um, you know, we, as we learned with the morning dove, juveniles very rarely return to the place of their birth to breed. Um, with the shrikes, uh, I saw numbers as low as 1% of juvenile loggerhead shrikes return to the place of their birth to breed the next year, um, with females especially dispersing far away from where they were born. However, adult loggerheads, um, unlike the morning doves, which, you know, once they pick a place, they keep coming back and back year after year, um, adult loggerhead shrikes um, seem to switch up their breeding spots also. A banding study out of Alberta, Canada, found that about 16% of adults return to the same territory to breed in a subsequent year. Adult males seem to return more than adult females did. However, the breeding territories remain the same, though, just with different breeding pairs. And 95% of the time, the breeding adults return to the same general area, but just set up shop in a different territory that was within about 5 kilometers from their previous breeding grounds. So the way to think of it is, like, you know, they're not coming back to the same house, but they're coming back to the uh, same neighborhood. So it's like if a whole neighborhood went on vacation for the winter, when they came back, everyone just, like, rotated houses. Loggerhead shrikes are mostly monogamous, but they are known to adopt a polygynous reproductive strategy, too. One study conducted by the MacArthur Agroecology Center found 2 out of 25 loggerhead shrike breeding pairs engaging in a polygynous breeding strategy on their 4,000-hectare ranch property. The polygynous males were extremely efficient hunters and prolific breeders, uh, capturing, capturing an average of nine prey items per hour compared to seven for monogamous males, and also produced an average of twice the number of offspring compared to monogamous males. The females are really the super fertile ones driving this relationship, um, and they have a cool strategy to make it work. Basically, the male's job is just to work his tail feathers off, providing food for both the female and the young. The females are smart about how they lay their eggs so that this all works out. They will take turns with one female laying her eggs first and the second female waiting until the first female's eggs have hatched in order to lay her own eggs. And like I said, this uh, observation was done in Florida. This is an area where shrikes are capable of producing a second brood. So 
both females would lay their second brood about 10 to 12 days after their first brood was hatched. So they're kind of spacing out the different stages that their nestlings are going to be so that it's not just, a you know, eight to 10 nestlings all at once for the uh, male to have to feed. They're kind of spacing it out so that he's able to keep up. Once his second brood is laid, uh, the females would actually entirely forget about their first brood and just leave the continued care of those young to the male. I kind of feel a little bad for this guy when I was like reading this. I mean, he's juggling so many nests at once, you know, and then once mom has moved on to the second nest, he's like, all right, nope, now you take care of them. I got my, my other nest. Oh, and by the way, still keep feeding me too. Um, I guess I don't really feel too bad for him though. Cause I mean, he gets double the babies, so it works out for him. Monogamous pairs take a much slower approach, waiting to lay their second brood until their first brood has fully fledged. I didn't see any data on this, but just common sense is saying that it's only the oldest, most experienced males that are able to engage in the, this polygynous breeding strategy, while most other males have to stick to the more traditional approach. I mean, that polygynous male has to feed so many young, and he has to keep up with so much. So only the best hunters are going to be able to do that. You know, if you're a, a younger loggerhead shrike, you're still you know, learning how to catch mice and everything, you're only going to be able to support, you know, just one female and just one nest. Like almost all passerine birds, shrikes do engage in some extra pair paternity. The only study I could find that looked at this with paternity analysis of shrikes was in Comanche County, Oklahoma, and it found 10.1% offspring were sired through extra pair mating. This puts them right around the average of other songbird species. One last note on the breeding of these birds, um, and it has to do with migration. A very extensive doctoral thesis paper I read by Amy Chabot out of Queen's University of Ontario uh, found that there was an increased loggerhead shrike genetic diversity along the routes they migrate through, suggesting that sometimes either migrant populations decide to settle down, you know, in the spot they're overwintering, or maybe along the way they engage in a little vacation fun on their overwintering grounds. So now let's talk a bit about loggerhead shrike vocalizations. Um, so these birds are songbirds, you know. Uh, they do sing. Um, the best description of their sounds, though, I came across was from this guy, Edward Brand Frost. Um, he hailed from Hanover, New Hampshire, and described the shrike song as a robin with a cleft tongue. He went on to say that their vocal range was broad, but disclosed a painful lack of culture, save for an occasional liquid, faraway tone, like a bit of blue sky seen through angry clouds. John James Audubon also described its song as resembling the grating of a rusty hinge moving slowly to and fro. So 
So they're not known for, you know, having a very beautiful song. But um, I feel like that's uh, probably more in a line with, you know, their personality. Like, they're not <laughs> going to be singing this nice, eloquent, beautiful song and then impaling a mouse uh, on a thorn. They have an interesting molting pattern. So molting, you know, that's how they replace their uh, feathers. They use a suspended molt strategy, meaning that in migratory populations, they'll begin replacing some of their feathers before leaving their breeding ground, but then pause and suspend their molt in preparation for their energetic demands of migration. Once they get to their wintering grounds, they will finish up replacing feathers. They seem to prioritize replacing the feathers that get the most wear and tear, such as the feathers on the wings and tail that are most exposed to the elements. They also prioritize replacing their retrices. These are the flight feathers on their tail, as these are important for maneuvering while in flight. Non-migratory strikes, they have it a little easier. You know, they don't really need to prioritize which feathers they replace, and they perform a much more complete molt each year than the migratory populations do. I mean, when you're just staying put all year, you can afford to spend the time and energy replacing your wardrobe. All right, so I'll wrap up the show talking about Shrike evolution, of course, um, and then I'll also talk about the unfortunate declining populations of uh, these birds and kind of why it's happening. Like I said uh, earlier, these birds are fierce predators, but also songbirds, so their evolution is is pretty amazing. Um, other predatory birds like hawks, falcons, owls, you know, they're not part of the songbird order, uh, Passeriformes, um, that shrikes belong to. The whole evolutionary history of passerines and their later division into ossines and sub-ossines, um, that's beyond the scope of this episode. Um, I could do a, a whole episode on that story alone. Um, but all you really need to know is that the roots of the shrike family, Lanidae, lie within the ossine branch of the passerines, specifically with the core corvoids group. Uh, we've talked about core corvoids uh, before on the show in the Blue Jay episode, so I won't go too crazy on the details. Um, you can you know check out that episode to kind of learn a little bit more about the development of uh, corvoids. Um, but just know that the development of this bird group uh, really exploded on modern-day New Guinea and the surrounding Pacific Islands. Our strike family, Lenidae, emerged around 30 million years ago. They emerged from a group of birds called clade Z that contained some birds you've probably never heard of, like whistlers, Australian mud nesters, drongos, fantails, and the ifrit. But this clade also contains birds you definitely know, the corvids, um, containing our beloved blue jay and all the crows and magpies of the world, and also the birds of paradise. That's right, those flashing, dancy, show-offy birds you've definitely seen on planet Earth. They're a relative of the Shrikes. I also thought that it was cool that corvids are, are related to Shrikes. Um, this episode made me realize just how smart Shrikes are, um, and I can definitely see a resemblance to the intelligent brain of crows. And remember, since Shrikes are part of that passerine order, they evolve from a songbird ancestor. Uh, this means that one day some happy little chirping, probably insect-eating bird, decided it might want to try some red meat for a change, and then became the murderous shrike we love today. As I mentioned earlier, all true shrikes do this impaling behavior, um, so it was likely present in their common ancestor. This behavior may have evolved to compensate for shrikes having relatively weak talons when compared to birds like hawks and falcons. I mean, you know, they evolved from songbirds that didn't need strong feet to you know tear apart prey 
Um, so, uh, you know, they have relatively uh, weak claws. And so this impaling behavior kind of helps to compensate, helps them rip apart prey. The evolution of impaling behavior uh, makes sense, too, when you look at their close ancestry with corvids. Um, corvids, along with other birds, are known to engage in wedging behavior to cache food. Um, for example, like in the crook of two splitting tree branches, you know, uh, crows will sometimes jam food in there to, uh, to store it. And shrikes, shrikes will do this, too. Um, and it's likely that's how the behavior started in shrikes. They were, you know, wedging something, and, like, it just happened. There was a thorn nearby, and they wedged it onto the thorn. And then it's like, huh, this rips off a little easier. And the behavior developed and got passed on. So to kind of give an idea about what our ancestor shrike looked like. So he was a full predator eating, you know, whatever little critters came its way and impaling them on thorns. And then left the New Guinea area where it first formed and spread across the world. Interestingly, there's no true shrikes in Australia, um, you know, even though it's just south of, uh, of the area where these birds developed. Um, so while they flew north to Asia and Europe, it appears that they didn't make it south to the island continent. Also, there's only two shrikes that occur in New Guinea today, the brown shrike and the long-tailed shrike. Both of these have pretty wide distributions across Asia, so rather than them being, you know, derived from the ancestral shrike that just stayed put in New Guinea, it's more likely that they came back from the mainland to colonize New Guinea. I didn't see any definitive genetic data on this. If anyone knows more, you know, please let me know. I could be wrong. There's four main genuses of shrikes, uh, the genus Eurocephalus, and Eurolestis. Um, these are both confined to Africa, and they only contain three members. The other genus is Corvinella. It contains just one member, the yellow-billed shrike, and lives in Asia. The largest genus, and the one that our loggerhead shrike belongs to, is Lanius. The genus Lanius radiated first in Africa and Eurasia before it spread across the world. Well, everywhere in the world except Australia, Antarctica, and South America, where shrikes don't occur. Um, the genus Lanius has 30 species today. Lanius shrikes actually pop up a surprising amount in the fossil record, um, for a bird at least. You know, bird fossils, they don't preserve very well. They're, you know, they're light, they're brittle. Um, the oldest fossils for Lanius shrikes come out of Hungary and date from 7 to 8 million years ago. This extinct species was called Lanius shrateri. The fossils seem especially abundant in southern Europe, um, specifically the Balkans, um, and date all the way through the Miocene to the much more recent Holocene. It's undisputed that the ancestor of the loggerhead shrike came across the Bering Strait to North America from Eurasia. We've seen a lot of birds, like woodpeckers and tits, cross across the Bering Strait into North America. That's because this tiny as little water um, separates Russia from Alaska and often closes during periods of glaciation. And this is what occurred during the Pleistocene, allowing ancestors of all North American... And this is what occurred during the Pleistocene, allowing the ancestors of our two North American shrikes to cross over. Examining the genetics of shrikes gives us an interestingly but somewhat murky picture of how the loggerhead shrike evolved. A close relationship exists between four shrike species, the loggerhead shrike, the northern shrike, the Chinese gray shrike, and the southern gray shrike. These shrikes have long been recognized as closely related. Sometimes they're listed as a superspecies, just called the gray shrike. The northern shrike, if you remember from earlier, is the only other shrike that occurs in North America, but it also occurs across northern Europe and Asia. 
The Chinese gray shrike, true to its name, occurs in China, and the southern gray shrike is found in Africa and the Middle East. I reviewed a paper from 2011 that found some really interesting relationships between these four species. Actually, I should say five species, because the paper found that the northern shrikes in Eurasia and North America were so genetically different that they should not only be split into two separate species, but they aren't even each other's closest relatives. But where did the shrikes come from before heading to America? Well, here's where it gets a bit confusing. Um, you'd think the New World Northern Shrike and Loggerhead Shrike would be the most closely related. I mean, they live on the same continent, for crying out loud. However, the New World Northern Shrike is actually most closely related to a specific subspecies of Southern Gray Shrike that lives on the Iberian Peninsula. A little more distantly related to them is our Loggerhead Shrike. And then more distant than that is the Chinese Gray Shrike. That's not all. I didn't even mention the Old World Shrike. It has its own miniature clade within this Gray Shrike superspecies. And it is actually most closely related to the subspecies of Southern Gray Shrike that occur in Africa and the Middle East. So what the hell? How is the New World Northern Shrike more closely related to some bird from Portugal than to our North America Loggerhead Shrike? There's two possible scenarios to explain this. The first one is that two separate colonization events occurred. In the first, an ancestor shrike that lived within the current distribution of the Southern Gray Shrike made it across the Bering Strait and formed the Loggerhead Shrike. Then, relatively recently, the same thing happened again and formed the New World population of the Northern Shrike. This scenario is unlikely from my point of view. Um, I'm a fan of Occam's Razor, you know. The most simple answer is probably correct. And two colonization events just seems like too much. The more likely scenario is that one colonization event occurred. And using Occam's Razor again, it's likely this colonization event came from an ancestral bird closer than Portugal, probably from a shrike inhabiting the current range of the Chinese gray shrike. This likely happened as recently as 1.1 to 1.8 million years ago, as this appears to be the divergence date for the loggerhead and Chinese shrike. This ancestral shrike then underwent speciation into the New World Northern Shrike and our loggerhead shrike during cycles of glaciation. A big part of this speciation was likely glaciers pushing ancestral loggerhead shrikes south. We've talked about glacial epochs, also known as ice ages, on the show before. Um, check out the Rough and Ready episode on the Rough Grouse, um, where I talk about how they cause speciation by driving species into areas of refugia, um, basically oases of livable habitat among the hostile ice. After differentiating amongst the ebb and flow of glacial advance and retreat, the Northern Shrike flew back across the Bering Strait and gave rise to that Iberian Southern Shrike. Fossils of northern shrikes dating from 11,000 years ago have been found in Bulgaria, so it certainly had made it across the strait by then. Um, one last note about these glaciations. Um, remember how I talked about in the migration of loggerhead shrikes? Um, they're short-distant migrants, but there's kind of four hot spots, you know, the Gulf Coast, um, the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, Mexico, Texas that they go to. It's likely these four hot spots kind of exist because these were areas consistently during the winter time that were free of ice. And so ancestral populations of loggerhead shrikes, you know, were going there. So it's still kind of ingrained in their DNA to, to head towards these four hot spots because they know they won't be covered in ice. Like a lot of widespread birds, the loggerhead shrike has subspecies, with seven currently being recognized. 
Um, I'll talk about a few of those subspecies as I end the show, um, talking about the unfortunately dwindling population of loggerhead shrikes um, and the reason why this decline is happening. One final note uh, before I move on from evolution, though, um, there's a lot of birds across the world with shrike-like names. There's helmet shrikes, bush shrikes, shrike tits, and shrike thrushes, just to name a few. Um, Don't be fooled. These birds are not closely related to the shrikes. They're not in the shrike family. They don't impale their prey. Um, They just kind of look like shrikes do, or they have, like, some kind of similar behavior. So people thought that they were related. Like other birds, such as robins and morning doves that need open fields to feed, loggerhead shrikes' uh, populations actually initially benefited from the massive deforestation of North America that occurred throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, it's been hypothesized that loggerhead shrikes may not have existed at all in northeastern America until land was cleared by early European colonists. Loggerhead shrike populations are expected to have peaked in the 1920s, but since then they've been declining, um, an especially drastic decline since the mid-1960s. Loggerhead shrikes have been extirpated from many areas they were once common, such as eastern Virginia and New England. Having spent the majority of my life on the eastern seabird, there's a reason I've never seen the bird we're talking about today. I know, I always feel bad doing an episode about a bird I've never seen. Um, at least with the hoopoo, I had an excuse, you know, I've never been over to Europe before. Um, but yeah, I've never seen a loggerhead shrike, unfortunately. Um, I actually even looked up the bird survey data for um, this bird in York County, where I'm from. Um, there have been no reliable loggerhead shrike sightings in the past 20 years there. Loggerhead shrike populations are currently estimated at 4.2 million individuals. That sounds like a lot, but since 1966, it's estimated they've undergone a 76% decline. Each year, they average a 5% decline, and in some areas, this is much faster, especially in the northern part of their range. This decline of loggerhead shrikes is fairly common with a lot of grassland species. Um, grassland species just kind of across America are all declining. And so um, the loggerhead shrike is kind of a good indicator species for like the the health of grassland areas. So there is a lot of interest into its uh, population numbers. As I mentioned earlier, certain subspecies are more vulnerable than others when it comes to population decline. The island loggerhead shrike resides on the Channel Islands of Santa Rosa, Santa Cruz, and Santa Catalina off the coast of Los Angeles. The population is of special concern with only 1,000 individuals estimated to be on three islands. Nearby on the island of Santa Clemente is another even more endangered subspecies. It's estimated there's only 50 of those left. The reason for these island subspecies decline is pretty much the same story we hear for every island species. Introduce rats and cats, prey on adults, eggs and nestlings. Um, There's also introduced sheep, horse, and feral pigs on the islands that have altered the ecosystem. In the continental U.S., migratory subspecies of loggerhead shrikes appear to be declining at a faster rate than non-migratory subspecies. There's multiple reasons for shrike decline overall, habitat loss, poisoning by pesticides, and being struck by vehicles, to name a few. Um, Remember, I said, you know, these birds will eat roadkill, and predatory birds are especially prone to being struck by vehicles because they'll often hunt along roadsides or, you know, they'll be eating some roadkill that's on the side of the road. Um, Roadsides tend to attract critters like mice, you know, because people will throw food out of their car windows. 
Um, and then hawks and shrikes will be attracted by trying to hunt them. Um, sometimes they'll swoop too close to a car in an attempt to get an easy meal and get hit. Uh, a study done in Texas found that over a 14-year period, 101 loggerhead shrikes were killed along a 6.4-kilometer stretch of highway. So, I mean, if you multiply out that 6.4 kilometers um, across shrike habitat, um, across the shrike range, that's probably a significant amount of shrikes that are being killed by vehicles. As I've said, these birds are often found on farms because farmland mimics the open savanna habitat where they like to hunt. But farms are often treated with chemicals like pesticides and fertilizers, and these have significant negative effects on loggerhead shrikes. An important but somewhat morbid study conducted at the University of San Diego studied the deleterious effects of organochloride insecticide, called dieldrin, on loggerhead shrikes. Different groups of shrikes were given increasing doses of dieldrin. As expected, as the doses of dieldrin increased, the average age of death decreased. Shrikes given 1 milligram of dieldrin had an average lifespan of 78 days, while groups given the maximum of 8 milligrams uh, done in this study lived only an average of 16 days. Another interesting thing this study looked at is how the poison shrikes interacted with their food. They found while there wasn't much difference in poison shrikes' ability to kill crickets, the dieldrin poison shrikes were significantly worse at killing mice. So, you know, if you're poisoned, you know, not only are you not going to be able to live as long because you're poisoned, but even exposures to small amounts uh, of this dieldrin, this pesticide, uh, really worsened their ability to be able to kill mice. Um, so that's going to decrease their ability to, you know, survive the winter. Once the insects are gone, you know, they have to rely on vertebrae prey. Um, so you can see why these birds can be declining. Shrikes seem to really concentrate pesticides in their bodies too, even compared to other birds that eat bugs. Shrikes can have as much as eight times the amount of toxins as other insect-eating birds do. Um, just my thought on this is because shrikes are not only eating the contaminated bugs, but they're also eating bug predators like lizards, snakes, and other small birds that have themselves contaminated bugs. You know, we, we've talked on the show before, like, example, with, like, kingfishers, you know, like, they'll tend to concentrate, um, you know, levels of mercury in them because they're eating a lot of prey that might have small amounts of mercury in the prey. But, you know, once you eat 10 of those small amounts, now you have 10 times the amount of the mercury. So it's the same thing with the shrikes. You know, yes, they're eating a bunch of the bugs that have the, the poison in them, but then they're also eating prey that has eaten a lot of the bugs. So it's even more concentrated. Fire ants also pose a risk to shrikes, um, but not in the way you might think. Um, while the invasive fire ants certainly have a negative effect on biodiversity, they don't seem to impact shrikes directly by, like, eating their nestlings or eggs. Rather, attempts to eradicate fire ants with pesticides like Myrex um, eliminate many, many bug species that shrikes rely on, and also poisons the shrikes when they feed on these bugs. A quick side note, um, from when I was reading, the best prevention for fire ants isn't pesticides, um, but rather fostering environments that are good for native ant species. Um, native ant species are the best thing for preventing the spread of fire ants. If you use pesticides, you'll just kill off even more native ant species and allow fire ants to spread even easier. Like, it's almost like dropping an atomic bomb. Like, yes, you'll kill whether fire ants are around, but you also kill any of the other, you know, ants that are there. And so then when new fire ants show up, they can just waltz right in. 
Another factor in their decline is modern land clearing practices that produce large areas of field or bare ground with little or no trees and fence lines. Um, and also modern agricultural practices where, you know, we have these big, huge fields that are just full of like one crop type. And, you know, that's not good for biodiversity. Um, and even if a field does have a lot of biodiversity and contain a lot of food items, if there's no good perches for the shrikes to hunt from, um, it's basically a dead zone for the shrikes. One study out of Lake Placid, Florida, found shrikes with large territories containing relatively few perch sites spent a lot of time both flying from perch site to perch site and defending their vast territory from intruding shrikes. Compared to other shrikes with smaller territories, they had decreased feather growth. So having to have a big territory, you know, because there's not enough perches, um, that is really bad for the shrike health. Shrikes like to have a small little territory that, you know, has a lot of perches concentrated and so they can just stay within that little territory and, you know, be as efficient of hunters as possible. Our litter may also have a negative effect on shrikes. A study conducted in Ontario and Indiana looking at loggerhead shrike nests found 20% contained some kind of plastic debris. They also found three instances of fledglings becoming entangled in the plastic. And since I'm a doctor, you know I'm going to talk about disease. Um, West Nile virus can be pretty devastating for these birds. Um, West Nile virus is a mosquito-borne illness. Um, it has a detrimental effect for many birds across the country, um, but already declining loggerhead shrikes are particularly prone. A study out of Central Valley, California, found that since West Nile virus was first detected there in 2000 and 2001, shrikes underwent a 50% decline. As far as more natural predators, um, eggs and nestlings are preyed upon by the common nest thieves, opossums, snakes, owls, and particularly raccoons. In Florida, the crested caracara has been documented preying on loggerhead shrike nests. A study I read, um, of course out of the good old MacArthur Agroecology Center, um, it found that loggerhead shrikes nesting in fence lines were particularly prone to predation. This study documented predators systematically walking up and down fence lines looking for bird nests. Nest observations made at the MacArthur Research Center have found that an average of 32% of eggs and nestlings are lost to predators. So these fence lines, you know, while they do provide some habitat for the loggerhead shrikes, they're almost just like buffet food lines for predators. Like they know, oh, this is where the nests are going to be, so I can just walk up and down this fence line and, and find lots of nests. Predation seems to be the biggest loss for nests. Um, at the MacArthur Research Center, uh, they found that 32% of eggs and nestlings are lost to predators. And the weather is also um, a major killer, too. 13% um, of nests succumb to strong winds or rain. So, I mean, just the math right there, that's 45% of eggs or nestlings lost to either predators or the weather. So you can see, you know, why they're not able to keep up with these population numbers. The adult loggerhead shrikes aren't safe either. Yes, they're predators, but they can become prey themselves. Um, they're only about the size of a robin, so predatory raptors will eat them. There's several documented cases of northern harriers preying on loggerhead shrikes. A study conducted in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia found 57% of winter fatalities in loggerhead shrikes were due to predation by raptors. So... It's not even the weather really killing the adult ones. Um, it, more often, it's going to be a bigger bird that kills them. One thing that the birds apparently don't need to worry about, though, is brood parasites. 
Studies have shown that loggerhead shrikes reject 100% of brown-headed cowbird eggs laid in its nest. So at least that's some good news. That's, that's not going to be impacting their population. All right. <laughs> A lot of bad news about the loggerhead shrikes. Um, you know, from what I just talked about, there are ways to protect these birds. You know, first off is supporting habitat for them, um, reducing pollution too, and just driving a little slower, you know, and a little more cautiously. Uh, vehicle fatalities suck. So we'll do all we can to help out these birds. But I will end the show on a happy note. Um, let's talk about the oldest known loggerhead shrike. Um, this shrike was 11 years, 9 months old when he was caught and released by researchers in California in 2010. 11 years is a pretty good time frame for, you know, a, a bird the size of a robin. So it seems like while, you know, they're declining and everything, that on an individual level, uh, they live pretty good lives. All right, folks. That's all for the loggerhead shrike. I hope you love this episode, and if you love shrikes just as much as I do after listening to this, check out the Dirty Bird Podcast uh, t-shirt, and you can uh, sport a nice-looking t-shirt with a uh, shrike on it. Keep the reviews coming, you know, send me any questions or comments, and as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a 